Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today is Friday, February 28th, 2020. Coming up on this edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered from Charleston, South Carolina. All the focus this week is on black voters in South Carolina. They go to the polls on Saturday to choose a Democratic nominee for president. In the next hour, we'll hear from those candidates speaking at the National Action Network Prayer Breakfast. Also, black women hold a town hall about the power of the sister vote. We'll also hear from the presidential candidates, Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. And also, Black Voters Matter. What are they hearing on the ground here in South Carolina? Folks, it's voting time. It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from. Lost news to politics with entertainment. 
Welcome to this special edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered from Charleston, South Carolina. Folks, I'm standing in front of the old Slave Mart uh, Museum. Uh, it's actually it's now a museum, but this is where slaves and slave Africans were actually bought and sold here in Charleston, South Carolina. That is so important because black voters make up a huge voting block in the Democratic primary here in South Carolina. They go to the polls on tomorrow to determine their choice for the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. So far, we pretty much had largely white states, Iowa and New Hampshire, significant voting block of Latinos in Nevada vote thus far. But tomorrow is going to be what do black voters in South Carolina want in their Democratic nominee? This week, all the candidates were in town, of course, focused on uh, these voters. Nearly 65% of all voters in the South Carolina primary will be African-American. The week kicked off with the candidates going at each other in the debate televised on CBS and simulcast on BET. Here is some of what took place this week. First of all, I'm sure many of you were at the debate or watched it. Um, I continue on my message um, that despite kind of the slugfest that can go on there, that there is still so much more that unites us than divides us. And I think we have to remember that as we go forward, uh, because when it comes to these issues of division and racial justice, we literally have a president right now in the White House who says after Char Charlottesville that there are two sides. Remember that? He said that. Well, when one side is the Ku Klux Klan, there are not two sides. There is only one side, and that is the American side. And we have to remember that what unites us here is that. Um, last night, I quoted Dr. King when he said uh, that we are all tied in a single garment of destiny, that what affects one of us directly affects all of us indirectly. And by that, I mean, first of all, the kind of hate uh, that this president has been spouting. Um, you think about the words and how much that means to people. What does that mean to kids in Baltimore when they wake up in the morning and they find out that the president of the United States has called their city rat infested? How do they feel? How do our immigrant kids feel when they hear the kinds of things and how he talks about immigrants? Words matter. What he says matters. The reason I'm running for president is that I believe that the American people are have been taken advantage of. But beyond that, I believe that we are very far from racial justice in the United States of America, that there is a dramatic racial subtext to every policy area in the United States that goes unspoken and that unless we address it specifically, we don't address race and we don't address the policy area. So I am one of the people in this who, who is running for president. I think I'm the only person who says I'm for reparations for slavery. And why is that true? Because that's the truth that we actually have to tell the story of what's happened over the last 400 years in terms of legalized discrimination, injustice and cruelty, but also of the incredible contribution to American society by the African-American community. And that when we acknowledge that contribution in building America, but to me also, the moral leadership that African-Americans have given the whole country for generations and centuries, 
is something that needs to be acknowledged and thanked because actually to this very day, I believe that African Americans are providing the moral leadership for this country right now. I'm here today because like you, I believe that every person has value. And like you, I don't just believe it, I am determined to act upon it. I've traveled this country listening and learning, and I've found that the American people know what's right, and they are ready to act. They know that they have been called to a time such as this, and I believe they are willing to step up. So I'm here today to say, for all the good work that you have done, you are not alone in this fight. When I am President of the United States, we will answer this call together. For me, I want to be clear, this call is not for empty promises. This call is not for vague ideas. This call is for real plans to make real changes in the lives and communities of people across this country. And I am proud that we have put forward the most comprehensive vision of any campaign to achieve that, beginning with the understanding that you cannot just wipe away a racist policy and replace it with a neutral one and expect that to deliver equality. We have to act proactively and with urgency, and that is the idea of the Frederick Douglass plan shaped by black voices on this campaign. To triple the number of entrepreneurs from underserved communities, to use the purchasing power of the federal government to help build up a black middle class, to triple our funding to Title I schools and dedicate $50 billion to the HBCUs that are creating the next generation of black doctors and black teachers and black astronauts. Racism is rampant. It's rampant in housing, in healthcare, in education, in financial services. And my promise to you is that instead of dividing the American people up, which is what Trump is doing, we're going to bring people together. We're going to end every form of ugly racism that exists in this country. Character is on the ballot this time around. And the man with the most character, the people I work with are sitting behind me here, he is the one who everybody's looking to. And Jim, you better hope I don't win because you're going to be the busiest man in the world. God love you all. Thank you for having me. May God bless our troops. When we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered here in South Carolina, we'll hear from presidential candidates Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren as they make the case as to why black voters should choose them to be the next Democratic nominee. We'll be back in a moment. To me, there are no greater patriots in America's long history than the black citizens who are willing to die for a nation that was denying them their rights. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate that has a real plan to fight for those sacrifices that have been taken for granted for far too long. And I've got to think it was in hopes that their service and sacrifice might redeem those rights for their children and grandchildren. Introducing the Greenwood Initiative, a bold new plan to help black Americans create generational wealth. One, 
we will help a million more black families buy a house. Two, we will double the number of black-owned businesses. Three, we will help black families triple their wealth over the next 10 years to an all-time high. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. There are concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. Join Reverend Dr. Jackie Hood Martin as she engages others to think like a leader. Are you looking to enhance your leadership or that of your team in 2020? Well, you can join her online course and mastermind group, How Successful People Think. She'll be your guide as you learn timeless leadership principles to apply to daily living. The offer expires on February 28th to register uh, or start the online course. Go to www.livetolead.com forward slash Leesburg, live to lead.com forward slash Leesburg. Again, it is the uh, it's an online leadership course uh, that you want, and it's called How Successful People Think. And so the deadline is February 28th. And so live to lead.com forward slash Leesburg. Here in South Carolina, we came across all the presidential candidates, but the two folks we had an opportunity uh, to actually catch up with and chat with were Vice President Joe Biden and Sir Elizabeth Warren. Here's what they had to say about why black voters should pick them to be the next Democratic nominee for president of the United States. So first of all, I just landed. So I just had this big argument with a guy named Rick in the airport in Buffalo uh, who said Trump saved the economy. Uh, he's done more for America since George Washington. Uh, clearly, he does not understand facts at all. I tried to counsel him on the Obama economy. And so how, how do you make the argument that you being president uh, can actually uh, continue an upward trajectory of the American economy that started when you were vice president and when President Barack Obama was in the White House? We created more jobs, as you know, Roland, in the last three years we were in office. We increased the standard of living for everyone, and we started to work on making sure the middle class and working class people didn't get left behind. And we continue to do that. Now you have a president who's squandering that. Have him go back to his old neighborhood, working class neighborhood, or go back to a neighborhood where, in fact, there's middle class folks. They are getting killed. Their wages are down. They're having trouble putting, paying for health care. They're in a position where they are in deep trouble trying to send kids to school. They, in fact, are getting clobbered. We're going to restore the middle class, this time bring everybody along black and brown as well as everyone else but you also of course have to get people uh to get out there and vote you have african americans out there according to a recent poll one third uh say someone else should be running for president and they more than 50 percent say democrats are not speaking to the interests of african americans uh how do you respond to that uh what is your black agenda uh, for african americans to get them to be excited about uh, a biden candidacy Number one, that's not the numbers we have in terms of how they feel about me. I have overwhelming support in the African-American community, enthusiastic support, and uh, number one. Number two, because they know me. 
younger African-American voters don't know me as well. That's why I'm reaching out to them to make sure they understand that in the Biden administration, we're going to allow them to be able to generate wealth. We're going to provide first-time homeowners with a $15,000 tax credit to buy a house. We're going to make sure we double the loan window for small businesses and entrepreneurs like we did in our administration. But from $1.5 billion to $3 billion, we've learned that we know and you know black entrepreneurs are equally successful as any other group of entrepreneurs. That'll bring $30 billion off the sidelines. We're going to put them in a position where they can actually begin to accumulate wealth, accumulate wealth in housing and business and make sure they have access to good education. I'm going to put $70 billion over 10 years into HBCUs, going to increase significantly funding for Title I. There's not a damn thing that can be done by someone, no matter what their background, if in fact they have an education, they can do it. And that's why in Title I schools, they're going to have three, four, and five-year-olds are going to be going to school, not just to daycare. That increases exponentially their prospects of succeeding going all the way through high school without getting in trouble and beyond getting a certificate and or a degree. So there's a lot we can do and they're ready. This is a talented, talented generation and Trump has ripped the band-aid off. We're at the second inflection point here, Roland. I don't know we talked about that before, but for real, there's two ways people got to get inspired. In my generation as a kid, we got inspired by a no-good SOB who was running in Birmingham, and, his, and, he, and he was the guy who went out there and was having fire hoses shifted on women going to church and kids. And, you know, th this is – and there's a new inflection point. we got a guy who's not wearing a cop suit. What he's doing, he's out there, and he's wearing suits, but he's doing the same thing to minorities. And it's wrong. We can stop it. And the American people understand it now like they didn't before, and they'll support me. In 2016, Hillary Clinton was nailed big time over her comments about super predators. You people have been very critical, especially young African-Americans regarding the 1994 crime bill. Uh, do you admit that there were mistakes with that crime bill? And how are you going to correct what took place when it came to mass incarceration that uh, hurt African-American communities in a huge way? The crime bill did not cause mass incarceration, number one. Number two, the crime bill had stuff I was against, like more money for for uh, state prisons. I oppose that. Some in Congress, Democrats supported it. My crime bill had overwhelming support from the CBC, overwhelming support from African-Americans, overwhelming support from African-American mayors because the crime rate was so high. We have a different thing. There were two things in the bill I didn't like at all. One was the Clinton proposal that was three strikes and you're out, which thank God never really got used. And the second one was carjacking was a, was a crime that was demanded a, 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 a maximum sentence. I want no, no mandatory sentences, period. I set up a drug court in that bill. No one should be going to jail for the use of drugs. They should be going into rehabilitation. I set that court up. Now people are all of a sudden discovering it when the Republicans wouldn't fund it. We're going to make sure that we, re re we change the system from one. We have a different problem now. There are too many people incarcerated now because of things like stop and frisk that happened in New York, not because of a crime bill, because of the things that happened around the country that, in fact, were directed at going after young African-Americans. That was not out of the crime bill. The crime bill had the Violence Against Women Act. It had the, it had the assault weapons ban. It limited the number of bullets that could be in a clip. 
and it did much, much more to help the African-American community. But here's the deal. When we were, when I became vice president of the president of the United States, we reduced the federal population by 38,000 people. 92%, and you know this, 92% of all prisoners are behind a city, a county, or a state jail. And I'm going to make sure that they're in a position that we encourage those those states by providing funding for them to shift from one of incarceration to one of rehabilitation. Nobody should be in jail who is when they get out and they clear and they've served their time. They shouldn't be able to have access to every program from from Pell Grants to housing. You know, right now, as you know, and I was one of the people that introduced a bill to change it, that in fact, right now you get 25 bucks in a bus ticket and you end up under a bridge. We want, it's in everybody's interest that we turn it from, from, from punishment to rehabilitation. It's in everybody's interest. And I've introduced uh, legislation to that effect. Roland, I, know you have to, I know you have to, I know you have to go. I got to ask you one last question. Uh, you made some comments sure. regarding being arrested in South Africa, trying to visit Nelson Mandela uh, uh, in your campaign and released another statement. Can you clarify that comment and what actually happened? What actually happened was I was with the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus. We were going to Soweto. We stopped in, in South Africa. I was a strong opponent of apartheid, as I think you know. And when I, they walked me off the plane, these two Afrikaner soldiers, we went down this red carpet. They had me turn right. I thought everyone was following me. I turned around and realized, no, none of my black colleagues or staff were behind me. And I said, I'm not moving. I'm going with them. They said, you can't go with them. We're not going to let you go through that same door. You have to go through a white only door. I said, I will not move. I will not do this. They ref I refused to accept the condition they set. Finally, what happened was they budged. They said, okay. And what they did, instead of making the, the African-American uh, uh, colleagues with me go through a black only entrance or me go through a white, which I would not do, what did they do? They when it has, they took us through the baggage claim area, emptied a, 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 um, a cafeteria upstairs, declared it neutral territory, and brought us in that way because I refused to be part of apartheid. And if anybody wonders whether or not I fought for apartheid, go to JoeBiden.com and check out the video of me versus Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State at that time. I in fact, was appalled by. And when Nelson right. Mandela came to the United States after he, was re after he was, in fact, released, he wanted to come to my office, and he came and thanked me. He thanked me for all I did to help end apartheid, and it was one of the most... And by the way, I said to him, this is a aside, I said, I said, Mr. President, you must be so angry, held in solitary. He said, no, he said, and I was the most Christian-like thing ever heard. He said, no. My, my jailers were just doing the job. When I left, they said, Nelson, good luck, good luck. This was one of the rarest, finest men I've ever met in my life. Well, I'm glad you joined us here on the show. Look forward to us sitting down uh, for a longer conversation. We have a little bit more time where both of us are not rushing uh, to the next stop. I am too, uh, so Roland. Let me know when. I'll, I'll try to make myself available to you. You're a good friend. We'll, thanks. We'll, we'll make it happen. Vice President Biden, thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. It's good to see absolutely, you. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you've gotten aggressive in the last two debates. Now, now, I'm just calling the truth out. That's it. 
One of the things that, uh, of course, uh, when you talk about that, you were very pointed with uh, Mayor Bloomberg, but also very pointed with Senator Sanders. Uh, why that shift, especially at this point in the race? Look, I think it's become pretty clear to everybody that the Democratic Party is a progressive party and that progressive ideas are very popular. That means we can't have one of those candidates on stage who just nibbles around the edges of problems. But it also means progressives are just gonna have one shot at this to make real transformative change. And that means we gotta have a president who has a track record for getting things done. And I got that. You've also been very clear when it talks issues related to African-Americans, speaking to them more so than anyone else in these yep. debates, but how do you move that needle them to support you, not just in South Carolina, but especially those Super Tuesday states? Yeah, you know, it's mostly getting out and talking to folks, but it's also about making clear, you know, everybody on that stage will kind of say the same stuff, make the same promises that have been made year after year after year. For me, I think it's time for a real shift. This notion that we just pass a bunch of policies that are race blind, we never talk about race other than to say, well, there's gonna be some effect here. I think we actually have to move to race consciousness. So for example, I have a housing plan to build 3 million new housing units across this country, we gotta do that. But it has a specific section in it to counteract the effects of redlining. I have a healthcare plan, I believe in universal healthcare, but there's a specific part to deal with the high black maternal mortality rates. I have a plan for canceling student loan debt, but it specifically is designed to help close the black-white wealth gap among those with student loan debt by about 20 points. I want to invest directly into historically black colleges and universities. I got $50 billion set aside for that. Those are the kinds of things we've got to do. We've got to do it partly because morally it's the right thing to do, but we also got to do it because having opportunity means real opportunity. Not just saying after decades and decades and decades of redlining, well, okay, now you guys can buy houses. No, it's saying it had a real effect. It created a black-white wealth gap. That was our government that did that. Our government needs to make it right. Last question. Democrats say, some Democrats say Senator Sanders is too far left. Can you become the alternative, being a strong progressive, but the alternative to Senator Sanders being the nominee? How do you make that case? Look, I am a progressive. I have good, rock-solid values. I know what I'm in this fight for, but I also have a history of getting it done. So, for example, as you know, uh, both Senator Sanders and I both wanted to rein in Wall Street after the crash in 2008. I was the one who got out did the hard work, uh, fought the banks, fought Wall Street, built the coalition. Fought Joe Biden. Fought Joe Biden, <laughs> built the coalition, and got it done. And President Obama asked me to come to Washington, spend a year to set up that agency for him. Um, that's real change. Do you know that little agency has not only attacked discrimination and lending head on, it has also forced those banks to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. You know, we can do progressive things, but we gotta get them done to make a real difference. And that's what I'm gonna do. That's Appreciate why I'm it. in this fight. All right, thanks a lot. All right, folks, all my Roland Martin Unfiltered fans, we are here in Charleston, South Carolina. 
uh, with uh, Tom Starr. Uh, good to see you again. Roland, nice to see you too. All right, first and foremost, before we talk about your 27-page plan for black America, <laughs> uh, it did not take long for Vice President Joe Biden uh, to come after you in last night's debate. Um, do you think he is concerned with uh, the inroads you're making with African-Americans? Well, of course he is. I mean, I think that he's under the impression that somehow it's not right for somebody else to compete for votes in the African-American community. And I think that obviously African-Americans, in my mind, have been the moral leaders of this country for a long time. This is a state that has a very high percentage of African-American Democrats. And I'm looking for South Carolina African-Americans to lead the country again and to set a new stage for you know where we go as a Democratic Party and as an America. Um, let's actually talk about that because uh, obviously um, you spoke at the National Action Network uh, Minister's Breakfast. 65% uh, of black voters in this Democratic primary, right. African American. This is the first of the, of the first four primaries where black voters really get a say. Yes. Um, what has it been like for you as you travel around this state? What have you been hearing from African Americans? What they want out of a Democratic nominee? Well, let me start by saying, Roland, and I think you know this, that I've been here more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And what I hear from African Americans in South Carolina, but also across the country, is this, broken promises from politicians. They want somebody who actually will tell the truth and deliver. Because I think African Americans have been hearing a lot from Democratic politicians every four years when they show up for votes and not much in between. So I think the first thing is they want to believe that what someone says is going to be true. Mm -hmm. I think what they want to believe, what they want is an acceptance and an awareness of the fact that there is a gross racial subtext in virtually every policy area. Mm -hmm. And that, there, that, that it's systematic, that it's deep, and that unless it's addressed, you're not going to deal with the subtext of racism and you're not going to deal with the policy itself. And so I think that African-American voters want an awareness that, hey, this has been going on forever. And it's time for it to stop. And we've got to start talking about it directly, talking about how we got here, and talk about what we're going to do actually to repair things going forward. Were you surprised when you brought up reparations in the debate, how quickly uh, conversation shifted? You know, without teasing, no one will even talk about it. You know, I'm for it, and I say I'm for it because I think it's important to tell the truth. And I think reparations are about truth. It's about saying something happened. Something terrible happened. It's caused a lot of damage. We need to admit both those things, and then we need to talk about how we repair the damage that's been done. Mm -hmm. What I see, and I, you've, this wasn't the only debate, Roland. I don't mean to be cynical, but I remember the last time they asked people, and I think both Pete Buttigieg said he was for a House bill that no one knew what it was for. I mean, people don't want to talk about reparations. And, and it's funny, I was talking to um, an African-American woman several days ago, and she said to me, look, there are people on that stage who want to have free health care for everyone in the United mm -hmm. States. There are people on that stage who want to have free college for everyone in the United States. There are people on that stage who want to have free preschool for everybody in the United States. Why is there only one person who wants to talk about repairing the damage of slavery, which has been going on for 400 years? Isn't one of the other issues that uh, is very interesting? You come to South Carolina, and all you hear on mainstream media Black voters, black voters, black voters, black voters, black voters. Nevada, it was Latino voters, Latino voters, Latino voters. Yet, 
I actually never hear any of these people say white voters. There's an, I agree with you, and there's an assumption here, which I don't agree with, that somehow everybody else is a special interest, mm -hmm. but that white voters are the main interest. And you know that, as you know, I'm from California. Mm -hmm. California is a majority minority state. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a minority. There is no majority. Mm -hmm. So in fact, you know, the idea that you're talking specifically to an issue that directly relates a community is normal. It's, it's absolutely appropriate. And there is no majority who is, you know, in the background all the time as the actual voting mm -hmm. control. It's not true in California. And so it's a completely different way of thinking. Let's talk about uh, this plan you released, the 27 pages. Uh, <laughs> pages. Uh, it deals with obviously voting, voter ID, deals with the census, uh, also increase, re increasing um, representation of African Americans in government, health care reparations. Um, uh, one of the things that, of course, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren talked a lot about is the issue of maternal care. And it's very yeah. interesting because when I've had uh, I had a, a very uh, pro-life black conservative on my show was talking about uh, why do you support people who, who abort black babies and on and on and on. And I said, wait a minute, you're pro-life. Show me where's your plan that deals with maternal care, dealing with prenatal care, dealing with uh, uh, what's happening with black women and childbirth. I said, if you really want to, I said, you, you want to deal with me on this pro-life issue. I said, okay, are you pro-life in terms of the womb, or are you pro, pro-life? Forever. I completely agree with that. I mean, are you now for making sure that there's subsidized childcare? Are you now in favor of Head Start mm -hmm. for everybody? Are you now in favor of universal preschool for everybody? I, I completely agree. I mean, there's a real question here. I mean, Elizabeth Warren's point about maternal care and how different it is for black women than for white women is true. You know, there is racism in this system. Some of it is specific, some of it is attitudinal. Mm -hmm. And it's true that, you know, you can look at the exact same system and black women get different treatment given the exact same circumstances than white women. And it's racism from the people who are delivering the service. Mm -hmm. And it's got, you know, it's sort of like saying in the criminal justice system that there is racism in the way that police officers treat people on the street based on color of their skin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true, it turns out, in a hospital room or a maternity one. When we talk about criminal justice reform, you, you have on here, restore the Department of Justice, uh, also restore judicial discretion through repealing mandatory minimums. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats who have been voting for mandatory minimums on the federal and the state level uh, as well, obviously, in cash bail. Uh, you know, Which we did in, in California, you know that. You. I right. pushed really hard. We did end cash bail in California. Mandatory minimums really were a way of making sure that the system had no leniency, had no discretion, and was harsh. I, I think that somewhere, you know, after post-1980, there was this absolute, reckless, racist attempt to incarcerate as many people as possible in as harsh a way as possible for as long as possible without any concern for their humanity, mm -hmm. without any concern for their family, or any concern for rehabilitation, or you know, what happened after they were incarcerated. I don't think there's any question about it. And mandatory minimums were part of it. I mean, in California, I pushed to end something called automatic sentence enhancers. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Mm -hmm. But it basically says that if you get convicted of a crime, if you have a previous crime, you automatically get a longer sentence. Automatically. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And it's, it's just another word for mandatory minimums. Harsh sentencing, automatically the judge has no discretion. That's all that really is. I was very much bothered in the debate when uh, there was one question that came up to do with housing, yet the moderators didn't even mention the fact that black home ownership, that is lowest rate since housing discrimination was legal. Yes. And, and I'm sitting there going, okay, like literally no mention of that. And so when we talk about uh, your, uh, your particular plan, let's talk about what it means uh, in terms of what will you do at present to deal with the housing issue, uh, not only affordable housing, but the home ownership, ownership. rate. So, so let me, I, I want to answer that question, Roland, but I want to give a little preamble to it mm -hmm. that I think you know. I started a community bank 15 years ago mm -hmm. to try and bring money to black people, Latinos, and women that I felt the financial services industry and banks discriminated against to support people in terms of black entrepreneurs who couldn't get a loan to build their business. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing, we've supported over 8,500 affordable housing units in the last three years. Every single place where we felt there was discrimination, we were trying to go after it to provide the money that otherwise would be available if there weren't prejudice. In terms of, if you look at this plan, we know that there's been redlining forever. We know that in fact, that's a huge reason for the disparity in black wealth versus white, black family wealth versus white family wealth. The inability to basically tap into the family wealth generator, which is a, a home supported by a mortgage where you pay down the mortgage, the house right. goes up and that's your wealth. Mm -hmm. One of the things that in there is, is subsidizing down payments for people. And that's gotta be done. Look, when I talk about reparations and I'm for reparations, the question to me is not whether there should be reparations, but the best form for them to take. One of the real questions here is, given the redlining, given the discrimination, given the fact that people have been shut out of that, is the answer to give people down payments. Mm -hmm. And what I don't want to do, look, as a white person, it's absolutely improper in my mind for me to sit here and say this bad thing happened and here's how we're going to redress it. What is okay for me to say, I think, is this bad thing happened. We have to recognize it. Now let's tell the story and sit down and come up with the solutions together because we need to explain how we got here, mm -hmm. but we also have to explain why the solution fits how we got here and how it's going to take us forward. And one of the real questions here is, should there just be down payment assistance? Yeah, that's one of the things I definitely am sitting here in the back of my mind thinking, we know there's going to be a lot of money. We know it's got to count, it's right. got to be meaningful, right. and the only question is, is that what's the best way to, and I don't want to prejudge. I think that there's a real question, this has got to be, that's why I call it a commission. People have got to be sitting there talking about what happened and what the right thing is to do to, to well, repair because, it. Because the reality is, I mean, look, my parents are 72, my dad will be 73 years old uh, in April, my mom will be 73 in November, uh, and the reality is they had to deal with the issue of uh, they were impacted by these housing laws. Of course they were. Uh, and there are a significant number of African Americans who are still living. And so when people talk about, well, slavery is so long ago, not realizing that there are people who are living who had to deal with Jim Crow. And we're talking about, look, Fair Housing Act was only signed in 1968. You're talking about then we're dealing with enforcement. You know, we're now into the 70s. Look, the other thing that's true, Roland, is this. Look, I was talking last week to a guy who, a black guy who runs a movie theater, a big mm -hmm. fancy movie theater with a bunch of 
you know, sort of food court stuff associated with it, and he wants to build a series of them. Very successful. Mm -hmm. He'd previously worked at Citibank. I mean, this is the kind of guy you think, okay, this is a guy a bank's gonna lend money to, right, obviously. Couldn't get a loan. Mm -hmm. Couldn't get a loan, had to finance his money completely from a shoestring. When he finally got a loan, the rate was 15%. Right. That is a tax on being black. It's a well, very well, heavy I mean, tax on being black. Well, absolutely, because if you look at the whole issue, same thing with student loan debt, you look at credit, you look at high interest rates, and so the tax comes in, auto loans, it comes in home, home loans, and poor people are having to pay a much higher, higher rate. rate. Yes. And that's exactly why we started the bank. You either can't get anything, or you're, pay, or you're paying a right. usurious rate that rips you off. And that's, we're saying, no, that's why we started the bank, was to say, that is prejudice, that is discrimination, in, its, in a, a way that hits people right where they live, in right. their pocketbook. It's just not fair. And so when you look at what we're trying to do, in, in, you're talking about home loans, our attitude is give people. Do I want to double the minimum wage? You bet I want to mm -hmm. double the minimum wage. Do I want to cut taxes for people who make less than $250,000 by 10%? I definitely want to do it. Right. But do I want to also put new people in charge of their destinies, their, own their houses, own their businesses, have control, not just get a, you know, a good deal? Yeah, that's really the purpose mm -hmm. is to change who's in control, change all of that around. The last question that, I, that again, I didn't hear come up last uh, in the debate when we talk about black businesses, the fact of the matter is there are 2.6 million black owned businesses, but 2.5 million have one employee. Yes. Uh, and so you talk about capacity to be able to, be able to grow as well. Um, how does your plan uh, address that? Uh, and not just in terms of capital, uh, but also contracts. Also, when it comes to, I'm reading Bob Brown's book, and he talked about uh, the Office of Minority Business Enterprise and how that really opened up the opportunities for black businesses uh, when, when, when he, uh, when Nixon was president, but he was the one who was charged saying no. Pounding on the door. create these opportunities for black businesses. And Roland, you heard me say this this morning, that they just built the Raiders Stadium in Las Vegas. Right. And one out of a hundred contracts went to a black owned business. Right, one out of a hundred contracts and for a stadium that black players are gonna be playing. Dominate. 60%, 80%, I don't know the number, but it's something in that range. Right. And so I look at that and I go, that's just abs. And that's why I said, anytime you talk about pushing for inclusion of black business, people start going like quota, quota, quota. I'm saying, oh, there is a quota. It's 99% for right. the old boy network. That's the quota. Right, and it's, and it's, and it's still happening uh, on a federal level. Look, it's a, Can't it's, have it. it's a $1 trillion 401k plan, pension plan on a federal level. African-Americans only manage 100 million and they the do better one trillion and they have a higher return. and do better and so my point on this is it's, this is exactly my point we need to acknowledge race explicitly mm -hmm. it's being acknowledged every single day in a negative way implicitly we have to bring that out and then we have to repair it there's something wrong here and unless we call it out and talk about it then we can't say hey one in a hundred contracts in Raider Stadium that just can't happen, mm -hmm. cannot happen. So let's stop the world here and decide how we're gonna change that number and we're gonna get black owned businesses to be doing this work so that black people are in charge so they can build their business, build their wealth and get control. Alicia, I, am, I want people to have control. I do, uh, this is the last question. Alicia Garza sent me this. She said, ask Tom about <laughs> the belt you brought back from Africa. Yeah, so I went over to Africa 
I'm wearing it. I wear it all the time, every uh -huh. day. It's from Kenya. Okay. I went over there to look at schools for girls. Because in a lot of the world, including in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Rwanda, girls don't get educated at mm -hmm. the same rate as boys. Not as long, not as well. Because, you know, that's a classic gender-based thing that's mm -hmm. all over the world. The reason I wear the belt is some friends of mine were supporting schools just for girls, poor girls, mm -hmm. so that they could go through high school. Turns out, when girls get educated, they save the world. Mm -hmm. Everything good happens. Every, if you literally said the number one thing we could do to stop the climate crisis in the world, right. educate girls. And so the reason I wear the belt is to remind myself about the importance of doing the right thing towards people that it has a ripple effect mm -hmm. that goes on forever. And doing the wrong thing has a ripple effect that goes on forever. And so I wear the belt, same reason I put a cross on my hand. Mm -hmm. Say, if you do the right thing, a lot of good things happen that you intend and a lot of good things happen that you never thought of. But that's how good thing, that's what you're on the earth for, to do those things. Well, I know you got to go campaign. Uh, you released a report. Uh, people can watch Tom, TomStar.com. They can yep. actually go take a look at it. Uh, and so if they have suggestions, Roland, I want to hear them. Look, that report wasn't written in a boardroom. Mm -hmm. That report is a result of years of talking to people on the street, of going to people's homes, of seeing how people live, seeing what's really going on in the real world. I am someone who believes every single policy issue has a huge racial subtext. And just as we were discussing in terms of the Raider Stadium, unless you talk about it, then, there's a race, then there is inherent structural racism that exists that you're not pushing back against. Mm -hmm. That's what this report is about, is pushing back against structural racism that often goes unspoken. All right. Tom okay, Scott, I appreciate it. Nice Thanks to so see much. you, Roland. Good luck on Saturday. Thank you. All right. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate that has a real plan for black youth in education. It's called the Greenwood Initiative. We'll make public college tuition free for all low-income students. We'll forgive college loans for students who were exploited by failed for-profit colleges. Mike knows investing in our teachers is investing in our children. We'll also recruit more black and Latino teachers as we did in New York City, because studies show they can make all the difference. And we'll also invest much more in heavily historically black colleges and universities, because many of the HBCUs are struggling. And the first step to achieving generational wealth is taken in the classroom. We'll incentivize state and localities to create financial literacy classes. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. They're concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. Let me say this. Senator, you see that gentleman, that's Roland Martin. Your folks need to get with him. Y'all need to talk to the black press. You know, I don't talk out both sides of my mouth. What I say on radio, I say in public. I say I was gonna tell you and Pete and all y'all, talk to the black, there's Roland right there. So y'all get that together. Did, did I do my assignment, sir? All right, thank you. Uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, thanks for joining us at Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, first and foremost, um, when you look at your polling numbers, not doing well at all among African-Americans, um, what's the deal? Why are you not connecting with black voters? Well, first of all, Roland, thanks for having me on the show and look forward to being on uh, many times in the future and I appreciate the work you do. Um, as for me, I've got to earn support with black voters. Um, I did earn that in my state of Minnesota where I have done uh, very well and had strong 
uh, votes when you look at all my elections in the community, as well as support from the leaders in the community. Um, so now it's my job to get out there and meet people and spread my message. And I know that other people have kind of a head start there, Vice President Biden being loved and well-known in the community. I get that, but that doesn't mean uh, that I don't just keep pushing things out there. One, I've been the leader on voting, um, like the voting purge bill, that's mine with Sherrod Brown, uh, the work that I've done when it comes to getting rid of gerrymandering, registering every kid uh, to vote when they turn 18, uh, same-day registration across the country, a bill I did with Keith Ellison um, years ago and still am, am leading, um, and then economic justice, which to me is a major issue in the community, that a lot of broken promises are still out there. People say a lot of stuff in elections, and then they don't make them come true. I'm someone that keeps my promises, and I have a very big focus on helping people for shared prosperity, and that's everything from childcare to investing in K through 12. My kid went to uh, public schools. She was at a school that was 90% free and reduced lunch for years. I've got some experience that other people don't have um, on the stage when it comes to public schools and the work that needs to be done uh, to make things more fair. Um, and then um, criminal justice reform. I'm someone that knows the bad and the goods of the system. I think we need some major changes. And as president, I'll be in the position to get them done. One of the issues when you talk about, obviously, appealing to African-Americans that is reaching out. And, and look, and I'll be, I have no problem saying it. Uh, you, know, you know, we spent a month trying, trying uh, to, to reach your campaign with no success. I know other black journalists, black-owned media, trying to do the exact same. And so part of this deal is also outreach. Uh, you got also a late start in South Carolina. And so uh, I talked to people in South Carolina who said, hey, we, we don't know her. We haven't seen her. We haven't seen her campaign. So we can't consider somebody who we don't even have any relationship with. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's start with the media. I'm on your show now, and I'll go on again and again. Um, I just found out about the request two days ago, and I'm on the show. Um, I have gone on other shows in local markets and the like, but I'm going to do even more of that. As for South Carolina, I think I've gone there 10 times now, and um, I did not have the resources of some of the other campaigns early on. Uh, for me, when we had that surprise showing in New Hampshire, that gave us the resources just because people gave online after that debate. Um, because I had finally an opportunity to put an economic message out there. Um, and that's given us the opportunity to invest, not just in South Carolina, but where I am right now in North Carolina and where I'm going to uh, be today in Tennessee. Um, we are going to Alabama on Sunday, and hopefully I'll see you there. I've been in Selma uh, several times before and have um, been part of Congressman Lewis's march. Um, I'm going to continue on. I was in Greensboro just yesterday uh, with that incredible visit to the Woolworth lunch counter, um, and this is going to be a big part of my campaign. And I just want you to understand why um, when you don't have the resources to invest in every state, like, say, a Michael Bloomberg, um, and you have to try your best. But I think I've been at every one of um, the major events in South Carolina, from Congressman Clyburn's uh, fish fry to the NAACP uh, event that we had, um, a Q&A for about a half an hour, and I continue doing my best, and I will continue to do that.
you talked about it. Well, we're also be honest, Mike Bloomberg has even appeared on the show as well. So uh, we're trying to reach him too. Uh, you talked about an economic message. There are 2.6 million black-owned businesses in America. 2.5 million have one employee doing an average revenue of $54,000. What is your plan when it comes to driving capital to African-American businesses, but also helping them build capacity? Because it's one thing to say we need more black-owned businesses, but the reality, black-owned businesses need more capacity, and that is the ability to be able to compete for larger contracts to be able to hire more people. What is your specific plan in this area? Well, first of all, it's working with the Small Business Administration to uh, make sure that more capital is getting uh, to black-owned businesses. And there's some, uh, the, the Trump administration actually uh, got rid of uh, the department uh, that was working on some of these issues, I would reinstall um, that department in the agency. Um, I also think that looking at government contracts and making sure that they are rewarded uh, to the minority community is key. Um, I think putting pressure on certain companies. I started the Diversified Tech Caucus in the U.S. Senate uh, because I think that's a major problem um, at the upper ends with um, what's going on there. Um, entrepreneurship, promoting opportunities, science, technology, all of these things. And then, of course, um, on the other end of it, it's raising the minimum wage, uh, something I think it is outrageous that we've had no increase to the minimum wage till when I first got in the Senate. Um, it hurts uh, people of color more than other groups in our country. Um, making sure that we've got a tax system that works for people. Um, and I would take a bunch of that Trump tax money and put it into things like child care, uh, retirement. Um, and then finally, uh, Congressman Clyburn has an excellent idea to invest, uh, it's called 10-20-30, invest in historically impoverished areas. I think all of those things are going to make a big difference. And the one thing about me, I passed over 100 bills as the lead Democrat, um, and I have kept my promises to people. And as I said, I think there's a lot of broken promises out there. And uh, for me, uh, this is a major priority. One of the things that also, when you look at what African-Americans want, they want uh, someone who is really focused on criminal justice reform. Uh, there have been questions about your record as district attorney uh, in terms of when it comes to not prosecuting police shootings, but also uh, African-American men who have been sent to prison. Uh, some say they are innocent. When you look when you look at that, when you look at that, the question is this here. How should African-Americans trust that you are going to be an advocate when it comes to criminal justice reform with the questions swirling around uh, your tenure as district attorney? Um, I think the first thing uh, that they've got to know uh, is that I, as anyone up on that stage, uh, knows what the problem is and that there is institutional racism uh, in our criminal justice system. And I saw it when I was there, and I see it um, a bit from afar in the U.S. Senate. Um, and I've done a lot of things to try to fix it, but clearly not enough. As president, I could actually do big things to fix it. Uh, the first thing for me uh, was the First Step Act. When I got to the Senate as a former DA, I got involved in those reform efforts, first the crack cocaine issue, and then, of course, the First Step Act. And I was a co-sponsor of that bill to reduce federal sentences uh, for nonviolent offenders. 
Um, then I think as president, what we need is a second step back since 90% of people incarcerated are in state and local prisons and jails. And what we should be doing is putting out incentives to um, make that the law of the land by getting states to do the same thing. And there's all kinds of ways you could do that. Um, the other piece of this is the criminal justice system itself. Uh, when I was there, I had a big focus on drug courts, a big focus on mental health and um, other ways to try to get people out of the cycle and out of the system. Um, I actually had a 12% reduction in African-American incarceration rate during the eight years I was there. That is not to say that um, there were not issues and there were not cases that could have been handled differently. It's just the raw facts mostly because I focused a lot on white collar crime as well as on drug courts. Um, in terms of reforms, when I got there, they were using the old kind of eyewitness ID where they show all the pictures at once. I worked with the Innocence Project and got a bunch of our police departments, I had 45 police departments, to actually start showing one picture at a time. Um, and that actually has been shown to reduce racial misidentifications and also having an officer show the pictures who's not the officer who knows who the suspect is. Uh, because there's all kinds of subtle ways uh, that they tip off witnesses when that happens. I argued for having videotaped interrogations. They actually sent me out with the Innocence Project uh, to debate the Queen's DA when I was a young county attorney uh, because I felt so strongly that that was a good thing so that you make sure people are read their Miranda rights and you make sure um, that, that the right things are happening in those interrogations. And then I did a DNA review of all the cases that had DNA that were serious crimes, went back through all of our cases uh, that were the most serious and did that in conjunction with the Innocence Project. Um, there weren't many. This was another, you know, decades ago. So not everyone was doing this at that time. And I would carry through that kind of commitment to the presidency, which is the most important thing, setting up a clemency board outside of the justice system um, so that I get advice on cases, not like this president has done, where he picks um, a bunch of white collar offenders uh, that he happens to know are famous in the news. Uh, but what I would do um, is routinely look at these cases and then review them to see which ones I think would deserve pardons and have uh, input from the community that is outside of the prosecutor's office. And I think so much of the time that's been missing in our system. That's why, for instance, everything has been messed up. We don't, the idea that uh, felons can't vote, um, I think that's wrong. I've supported efforts to change that. Uh, the idea that we don't do enough on reentry. I visited an African-American woman that was incarcerated before I got my job as prosecutor. I visited a woman um, for over 10 years. Uh, who'd been convicted of murdering her pimp, actually. Um, and we grew to be friends, and she's now out, and I have some contact with her still. Um, that's a personal commitment I made through a nonprofit to do that, but I hope it shows uh, people where my heart is. When we, when we talk about, again, public policy, um, one of the things that also um, for African Americans, uh, as they really begin uh, to to look at this public policy, housing is an issue. Uh, the fact of the matter is, the black home ownership rate is at its lowest point uh, since uh, housing was frankly uh, legal before the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. 
So what is your specific plan to address the issue of black home ownership? This is, to me, when you look at all these public policy things everyone was, is talking about, I was so glad I asked this question at the debate. I know it wasn't an exciting time at the debate to get this question, but to me, if you can fix this, uh, you are going to solve a lot of problems. If people can have a roof over their head and a stable place to live, whether it's apartment or a house, and live for kids in the same district and be able to have the same friends and not have to move around uh, because of economic issues, you're going to fix a lot of problems. Um, and I saw that in my old job, and I see this in running for the presidency. So I actually have one of the most expansive plans out there. Um, and that's because I worked with the mayor of St. Paul on it, who's a progressive African-American mayor. And so the first thing is there are over 4 million families right now on the waiting list for public housing or Section 8 housing vouchers, 4 million families. In many places, the wait time for a home is two to three years, and it can be even longer. And so I will completely eliminate that Section 8 backlog and um, make sure that people have temporary housing while they are awaiting a permanent place. Um, and that's how you make sure that people are not left out on the streets or that they're not going from place to place to place. Um, and this really comes from my core uh, growing up. I still remember my parents' house on this dirt road uh, that they built with a GI loan. Um, and I still remember the yellow oven that my mom had that she had until she died, actually. She stayed in the same place. And that stability uh, made a lot of difference in our life. Um, the other thing about it is incentives for building uh, more affordable housing to increase supply, and that means a major expansion of the low-income housing tax credit, and then connecting people to housing, banning landlords from discriminating against people uh, based on the source of their income, including housing vouchers, um, supporting workers and reducing poverty, and we just talked about the minimum wage. All of this is going to make a difference. Um, it's Barbara Jordan that once said um, that what America wants is simple. They want a country as good as it's promised. And that's what this housing policy is about. One of the issues also uh, with housing also that, that really jumps out uh, really deals on uh, affordable housing. And what is happening is across, across this country, we're seeing cities provide massive tax breaks to various uh, developers to build so-called affordable housing. And really what is happening is uh, they are moving uh, black folks out of low income, moderate income areas. Identification uh, is a major, major issue. Uh, and so that also is something that, that has to change because what you're seeing is you're seeing literally uh, black folks being run out of Washington, D.C., run out of Chicago, run out of major cities where they've been living for generations because of this so-called uh, push for upscale housing development complexes. And so how do we strike the balance between development in downtown quarters and other places, but where we're, we're causing people who are largely black and brown to be forced out and, and moved away from these areas where they've lived for generations. Exactly. And I, one of the most evocative things for me was um, walking around San Francisco uh, where they actually had painted murals of the people that used to live on the block 
uh, that because of, of course, all the high-end housing that had been put in and the increase in rents um, had been forced out. Um, they literally, people painted their faces um, and they're up on murals. And this is, of course, happening all over the country, as you point out. Uh, so to me, um, you've got to counteract that um, by having other ways to create incentives so people can stay in their homes. Uh, Minneapolis just did something new with multi unit housing to allow it in areas that had been um, formerly been single homes. Um, and it's actually being heralded as a really innovative way to try to get more multi-unit housing. It's worth looking at. It's been received very positively. It just happened with our city council, which is very progressive, uh, and our mayor uh, in the last year. Uh, the other thing about it is just um, to stop some of these incentives. I think the opportunity zones are a good idea in concept. We know that. Um, but again, um, the way this administration has applied them and used them, it has um, rewarded money to people with a lot of money um, and hasn't done and has allowed some of the money and incentives to go into places that aren't needed as much as other places. So for me, it's like, what are the results? Not what sounds good in a campaign brochure, but what are the results? And so um, the results should be that people have a decent place to live, they're not being shoved out of their homes, um, and that we have more equality when it comes to tax policy, when it comes to incentives for housing, as well as incentives for businesses. The folks at The Root uh, released their, this morning, released their um, uh, listing. It's called Every Democratic Candidate's Black Agenda Ranked. Um, and uh, at the uh, top of, of the ranking, uh, with a score of 79, is uh, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, yet at the bottom is Tulsi Gabbard with a zero, and then you at 22. When they looked at so you're you're the next to the bottom, uh, according to uh, this breakdown of the route, uh, and look in looking at it, uh, and under economics, uh, they say Klobuchar's economic plan for Black America is sparse. Criminal justice does not have a specific criminal justice reform plan, but also uh, they list education score, politics score, feasibility, history, intentionality, impact. So there are a number there. And so I really, so really, I think, I mean, obviously there's a significant challenge there uh, to reaching African Americans. And so the last question for you, uh, your path forward, you're going to Super Tuesday, South Carolina, Super Tuesday states where you have significant black population. At the end of the day, if you're, if you're getting point, polling around 0.5 or 1% of African Americans, uh, there's no way in the world you can effectively compete for president of the United States. And so uh, what do you have to change to actually uh, reach African Americans and get them to actually believe that you are the best choice to go against Donald Trump and represent Democrats? Um, sure. So first of all, we have gone back to the root because we have an extensive plan for criminal justice reform that you can find on our website. Um, and I, for some reason, I think they didn't locate it. Um, and it says we don't have a plan for K through 12 and the like when we have a very thorough plan, um, similar to my friend Kamala Harris's plan uh, that's been out there for quite a while. And I'm sure it's just some confusion, but we really do have all these plans up on the website. So we are working with them. Uh, this often happens with groups that sometimes um, 
there's just some miscommunication or the plan's not located, but it's right out there on the website, especially I know because the criminal justice plan um, I was extensively involved in, and it is um, quite long and quite thorough. So um, I'm looking at it right now. Um, to use Elizabeth's note, words, it wouldn't fit on a post-it note. So um, like 15 pages long. Um, all right, so as far as the, your second question, uh, which is um, outreach to the community and the future, I'm just gonna keep earning their support and earning their respect. That is how I've gotten ahead in politics. Again, I don't have the biggest bank account, but I have a lot of really bold, good ideas. Uh, I have the fact that at home, I've had a lot of support in the community, a lot of support in the immigrant community because the work I've done on immigration reform and helping immigrants, a lot of support from uh, people of color. And I think everyone knows where I'm coming from when they remember that moment at the Kavanaugh hearing uh, when he went after me and I didn't just quiver, I stood my ground and he came back and apologized. I am someone that stands up for people, and that includes our communities of color. That's what I'm going to do all over the country. I am going, as I said, in the next few days to Alabama, uh, to North Carolina, to Tennessee, to Arkansas, and of course I was in South Carolina. Um, I know I am not as well known as the vice president particularly, and I don't have the money of Michael Bloomberg, but what I have is the heart for what I've done and what I will do as president. And I'm just going to keep getting out there. And I guess I got to keep going on your show. That would be a good idea. All right. Sarah Amy Klobuchar, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, Roland. Mike Bloomberg is the only Democratic presidential candidate who understands that wealth creation and the current racial wealth gap is linked to past racism and has a plan to address the impact on black America. The crimes against black Americans still echo across the centuries and no single law can wipe out that slate clean. The time has come, I think, to fully commit ourselves to acknowledging our history and righting our country's wrongs. And that's exactly what I will do as president. It's called the Greenwood Initiative. One, we will help a million more black families buy a house. Two, we will double the number of black-owned businesses. Three, we will help black families triple their wealth over the next 10 years to an all-time high. Mike will get it done. Visit MikeForBlackAmerica.com to learn more. There are concrete proposals that we can afford and that we can get done, and we will. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. Paid for by Mike Bloomberg 2020. All right, folks, when we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered, we'll hear what black women have to say about the power of the sister vote, not only here in South Carolina, but across the United States. You're watching the special edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered from Charleston, South Carolina. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, fam, we'll check out Roller Martin Unfiltered, the blackest show on all of digital cable and broadcast. Check out our audio podcast. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roller Martin Unfiltered. Press play. The people that I talk to, a lot of them are scared. Losing your eyesight can be a very scary experience. My job is to help them start the process of getting the resources they need to live a full and healthy life. I am Cynthia King, 
and I'm a senior therapist program assistant for the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I've been doing this specific job for 18 years, but I've been in public service for 28 years. When a consumer calls in, I am the first person that they speak with, and I provide them with the information that is needed. I ask the individual, can you kind of tell me, because of your vision loss, what problems are you experiencing? And then a lot of times, that'll usually open it up to say, well, you know what? I used to really enjoy reading, and I'm not able to read my books anymore. Or I used to love to cook, and I can't see the buttons on my stove. Then we can come out and do a home assessment to determine if there are any technical aids or any techniques that we can assist them with so that they can be able to maintain some of their independence. Cynthia is a very caring, loving person. You can hear her on the phone talking to the clients and you can hear the passion in her voice. She gives her all to you. When I first started, we didn't have the health care that we have now. We didn't have the salary and the income that we have now. When we went through a rough time during a reduction in force, AFSCME ensured that fairness and seniority secured my job. Our clients are going through a traumatic change when you lose your vision, losing your independence, but Cindy always seems to find a way to, to, to make them comfortable. Her friendly tone, her demeanor opens the door up for them to say, well, yeah, s send a rehab teacher out here. I want to meet with a mobility instructor. It's because of the way she handles their initial conversation. I've done this job for so long because I love what I do and I love helping others. This job has been so rewarding for me on every aspect in my life and the joy of knowing that I have helped someone to continue on their journey. Well, here in South Carolina, the Black Women's Roundtable held a powerful town hall where black women spoke about the power of a sister vote. They're going to be a critical voting block not only in South Carolina on Saturday, but also in the Democratic primaries all across the country. Here are some of what they said in their town hall on Thursday. There are a lot of people that have a lot to gain by dividing us. And they have invested a lot of money and strategy and time into figuring out how to divide us and how to get us so frustrated that we just throw up our hands and we walk away. And I think it's very incumbent upon us as the leaders in our communities to be that voice of reason in the room to say, not again. We are in this dichotomy where we are defeminized, treated as not women, treated as beasts of burden, treated as the bearers of all of the crap of the society. And sometimes we buy into it in the myth of the strong black woman and that is killing us. Stress is the silent killer. Mm -hmm. Just like they say high blood pressure is the silent killer, stress is a silent killer. And black women, we, we remain silent a lot when we're facing like stress from our jobs, when we're facing stress at home, stress you know, just within our everyday lives. And we do that in order to um, be able to be secure. I want somebody that sees me as human because when you see me as black, you keep putting your prejudice in there, right? But if you could see me as human and understand that we all want our basic needs met. We deserve to have our basic needs 
you know, as you said, housing, transportation, equal pay, all those things are like rights that we all have, right? And should have. But I do believe like, see me as human, because when you start seeing me as black, you haven't learned how to see me as black yet. I should say that you haven't learned how to see me as black. So see me as human, and then we can go into talking about um, what I need from you now and after, because what I don't want to keep seeing is you pan, you know, it's like the panhandlers on the train. It's time to vote, so you panhandling for my vote? Mm -mm, that don't work for me. So and in our community where we have a majority of renters, we're not able to have access to wealth creation tools the same way as someone who owns a house. Or in, when you think about access to capital, it's not enough for um, there to be investment in our community if we don't control that investment in our community. And so there has to be a relinquishment of control in terms of capital and how it flows into our community. And so if we don't have black women lending to black women, and we have black women having to meet the standards of someone who, who cannot see our growth potential, who does not understand our markets and our customers, then when we walk into a bank and we say we need a million dollars to do X, Y, or Z, they can't see what we see because they don't know our customers like we do. What I am very concerned about is that we take the challenge this time to not just show up at the, at the polling polls in the same way that we typically do, I think it's very important that we maximize our vote. We don't have one vote to spare, so really just doing everything that we can do to make sure that everybody that's eligible to be registered is reg registered. Everybody that is registered shows up. We need to make sure that we show up at historic levels in 2020, and we have the power to do that. And I cannot overstate the importance of building effective black women-led coalitions like the ones we have on the Gulf Coast, like the ones that Melanie's leading, like the ones here in South Carolina. There's power in numbers and increasing and holding our leaders accountable to a collective agenda that speaks not only to the needs of black women, but speaks to the needs of our community as well. But we have seen one of the most aggressive attacks on voting rights in modern day history, and it started way back, you know, in 2011, where we saw more than 200 pieces of legislation move across the country, photo ID, attacks on third party voter registration, attacks on same day voter registration, all of that happened. And we are now feeling and seeing the effects of that. Someone mentioned Stacey Abrams on the previous panel. Stacey Abrams is not the governor of Georgia because of voter suppression in Georgia. That's very real. We cannot lose sight of that. And so what we're seeing now, we're seeing polling places being moved. We're seeing all of these attacks on voting rights. And you got to recognize that if someone is willing to spend millions upon millions, upward to billions of dollars, to keep you from voting that there is something powerful about your vote. Now I told y'all my cousins in Washington, South Carolina, I grew up on a dirt road in Johnsonville, South Carolina, and I went to a little small church. I want you to look at your sister next to you. I want you to say, sister. Come on, we can do better. Say, sister. What's happening? What's happening is an attempt to shift power. 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 The attack on voting rights is an attempt to shift power. 
It's all about power. It's about who controls the power. It's about what that power yields. We can never lose sight of that. And the most important thing for us is to leverage that power and to hold those accountable who we vote for. Because long will be gone the days in which anybody will expect for black women to carry any election on our shoulders. And when it gets downtime for the policies that we advocate for, that you just want to give us a slice of the pie, knowing that we cooked the whole darn meal, that we created the recipe and built the kitchen. All right, folks, when we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered, we'll talk to Black Voters Matter. They've been traveling all across this state talking to black voters. And we'll hear from them about what they say Black voters say the most important things they want to see in Democratic nominee. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here in South Carolina. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, my name is Pam Keat. I'm an attorney, uh, an activist, a political pundit, and sometimes political candidate. And my Black History Month moment is about my spirit animal, Shirley Chisholm. One of the first African-American women to serve in Congress, uh, she was elected in New York in 1968, the year that I was born. And Shirley was a daughter of immigrants from the Caribbean who had the most powerful, eloquent, uh, articulate way of communicating, but she was also a spitball. She used to absolutely raise hell on the congressional floor, fighting for the little guy, fighting for minorities and women and workers' rights. And in 1972, she became the first African-American woman to run for president of the United States. Despite all of the obstacles that were put in front of her, she wasn't even allowed into the presidential primary debates. She had an amazing showing, and she inspired people all over the country with the, her saying, her motto of unbought and unbossed. If you were to take a look at Shirley Chisholm's platform back in 1972, you'd be surprised at how almost identical to the current times and current platform that it is. She was way ahead of her time. But she's the woman who inspired me to go into politics, to know that to whom much is given, much is required, and Shirley absolutely lived up to the bill. Shirley Chisholm, 1972. That is my Black History Month moment. Folks at Black Voters Matter have been traveling all across South Carolina as well as the South talking and engaging with black voters. They held a watch party on Tuesday night when the Democratic nominees were debating, but they also have been holding forums all across this state, Columbia and Charleston, to engage black voters to hear what they have to say. Here's our conversation. All right, Cliff, glad to have you here. So uh, let's talk about South Carolina, black uh, Voters Matter. You guys have been on the ground all across the country. Um, what have you been hearing in South Carolina? What are the voters saying uh, about the candidates, what they should be talking about, what they aren't talking about? What do they like that they're hearing? Just give me, under, give me a, a perspective. Yeah, you know, what we've been hearing is really you kind of got three camps, right? You kind of got the um, I don't care who it is. I just want whoever can beat Trump. You know, it's this whole 
electability narrative, which we've been arguing through this bus tour is really a fear narrative, right? And so we've been talking about a campaign against that fear and the vote based on our issues. Um, that's the second camp that you do have folks that have really focused on the issues. They wanna pick the one that, that best connects with them on their issues that they're most excited about. So you've got that whole camp. And then you've got the, the camp that's kind of like, um, I don't care who it is right now, right? Y'all go on and pick somebody. Let me know who it is, because in November, I'm going to vote for whoever's there. And that's going to be, you know, who I'm going to vote for. And so, you know, it kind of falls into those those three categories. And it's really hard to tell, honestly, you know, where most of the energy is right now. But there are still a lot of people that are making our decisions, our preferences based off of how we think other folk are going to vote. And that's never been a winning strategy for us. Uh, also, uh, Adrian Shropshire's group uh, dropped their um, uh, survey, which stated that African-Americans, uh, a third of them want somebody else running for president. Uh, mm -hmm. And more than 50 percent said uh, these black folks, they polled said that uh, Democrats are not speaking to their mm -hmm. issues. And in fact, Cornell Belcher, um, in, in responding to this this story about how the Trump people are going to be creating these stores in black communities, uh, selling Trump items uh, with uh, with woke and things along those lines on them, which is like a joke. Um, well, this is what Cornell said. Mm -hmm. He said, um, crazy like a fox, we're seeing a segment of very low political information, younger black voters who protested their vote in 2016, who see no important difference between the parties who are malleable to some of the, his messaging. If he gets to them first, it's going to be a big problem for Dems. Yeah. He then said they only need a couple of more points out of these communities. And I'm telling you right now, Dems lack of communicating and engagement with a segment of the more low info and disgruntled black electorate is a problem. Seeing it in focus groups across the country. Yeah. No. Are, I, mm -hmm. are you seeing that and hearing that? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And that's part of the reason why we're really emphasizing that there's got to be more discussion on, on our issues and not just the kind of political gamesmanship. At the end of the day, the leading candidate right now of, for the black vote isn't Biden and it's not Sanders. It's that population that Cornell was talking about. It's the it's the folks that aren't engaged because none of y'all was talking about what I want to hear. And so that's why on this bus tour, you know, um, media is always asking us like, you know, oh, which candidates are they talking about? And we tell them, we're going to communities talking about folks' issues, the things that they're dealing with daily. Like when we were in Gadsden Green here in Charleston, you know, talking about issues about the uh, flooding that they go through. They live in a, in a community that's like a bowl, much like New Orleans, so that when it rains, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a soup bowl. And so uh, we were talking about that there. We were in uh, Columbia yesterday talking about a community. There's a housing community there where 400 people were displaced because of um, housing and um, carbon monoxide poisoning, toxic carbon monoxide. And so you got an entire neighborhood that was displaced, which caused all kinds of ripple reactions. You know, we got communities where we've gone and we've been talking about criminal justice. And so those are the things that folks really want to hear more about and connected to their daily lives. That's the only way you're going to get to that population that Cornell's talking about, the ones that right now aren't hearing what they want to hear. And then you get that message from, from Trump and the way that they're targeting it, and he's right, and, and you and I have talked about this, and, and, and even there's some gender targeting going on there, mm -hmm. right? Um, the way that they're targeting it 
if they get that two, three, whatever, he knows he's not getting a majority. He right. knows he's not getting 20% of the black vote. But if they can increase it up to 13, 14, 15%, you know, we're in, it's particularly in particular states, then we're in dangerous territory. Uh, and that's why I was extremely frustrated with Tuesday's debate. Mm. I was in the room. Um, my problem is that it was a debate sponsored by the Congressional Black Caucus Institute. Uh, mm. I said before the debate that black folks should be centered in the entire mm. debate. Mm. I felt they weren't. Uh, I said, how can you have discussions regarding China, North Korea, Syria, and all of these, uh, Russia, but you have no mention of Africa, no mention of seven out of the 10 fastest growing economies in Africa, no mention of Trump uh, keeping Nigerians out of the country, uh, no mention of him calling African nations shithole countries, uh, no mention of any of these things. And I'm sitting here going, what the hell is the point of having a CBC Institute debate if you're not going to have black folks centered? Uh, it was, of course, on CBS, but it was simulcast on BET. But none of the BET news people were moderators asking questions as well. And, and, and people got mad at me uh, like somebody who actually writes for The Root. And I'm like, so you're a black targeted website and you're mad at me because I'm because I called out black networks for not coming together. And this is exactly what I said. I said the eight black targeted and owned networks should have come together and said, all right, we're going to put in 50 grand each to hire a company. And we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to control the debate and we're going to simulcast it on BT, BT, her TV, one Clio, aspire, bounce own right. and revolt. Right. I said, you do that. You're reaching black people. That's right. And that's why I said that. Right. You know, the problem with that, you know, it's like the saying that we have in our community role, and that would be too much like right. And so, you know, that's why you get a pushback. That's just too much like right. You know, if we're not going to center our issues, who will at the end of the day? And that's the argument that we're making. This entire discussion, this entire primary is really coming out of a framework that is white leg, you know, and, and the media, every time there's a national poll showing the way the entire country is, is, is thinking about these candidates, um, that's shaping our thinking. Every black person right here in South Carolina, regardless of who they were leading for, every time they see one of those polls, it forces them to think about, you know, what other people are thinking. Right. And so we've got to be willing, we've got to have the audacity to actually center our issues, um, to, to do so through our media outlets, as you, as you pointed out, and to do so unapologetically, we've got to believe that we can drive the electability discussion because at the end of the day it's always been us through our love through our hope and faith it's always been us that have pushed this country closer to becoming a democracy that it thinks it is that it's never been but that it thinks it is right and so in this moment this critical moment if we're not willing to center our issues then who will and and look the reality is if you look at since 1964 no democratic candidate has received more than 39 percent of the white vote not That's one. Right. And, right. and, and now what I, what, I, what I do say to people to get them to understand how it is a matter of, of how white folks are thinking and operating, if you look at the fact that uh, this pro in the last election, 71% of the total electorate were white voters. That's right. and, that, and what I keep saying to black people, that makes it even more a reason why we can't have in Alabama 900,000 unregistered people, but 500,000 of the 900,000 are black. Right. You can't have a quarter of a million unregistered black people in South Carolina. 
You can't have, you know, look, Mike Espy only lost to Cindy Hyde Smith by 68,000 votes. If black people had actually voted their their numbers, Espy is a United States Senator. Right. That's right. Yeah. And that's which raises another issue, right? Um, That we can't, you know, and again, going back to the debate, it's disappointing that there wasn't more discussion about voter suppression. You know, we, we really can't continue to engage in these discussions without giving that more serious, more serious attention and, and all of the forms that it's taking. And so, you know, whether that's the voter purges, I mean, just a couple of months ago, we saw in two states in Georgia and Wisconsin, where just in, in a single day in like a 24 hour period, 500,000 voters were purged right. from these lists. Right. So we can't continue to act like uh, it's the it's the most under talked about issue that came out of the 2016 election. People want to know why was turnout lower and why this and why that. And everybody was acting like it wasn't the first presidential election since. Oh, look, dude, 2012, 2012, CNN CNN does a documentary Mm -hmm. on voter suppression. It runs in October. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yo, do y'all understand we should have, because first of all, I have been writing them, dude, early I said, this should have been done in 11 or in January 2012 before registration ended. You know, it's like I said, doing it in October is kind of late. Right, that's right. That's exactly (laughs) right. Yeah, because we we tend to think about the voter suppression issue and the election protection as being an election day issue. But the suppression takes place all throughout the year, right? It, It means decisions around which polling place is going to be closed. You and I talked before about all the thousands of polling places that have been have been closed. More than 1,200 in the South since the Shelby B. Holder decision. That's right. That's right. Those decisions take place all throughout the year. That's not just an election day issue, right? That's taking place all throughout the year. Decisions around early voting and cutting early voting hours and, and, and where the polling place is going to be located. Like all of these decisions, all the, the full spectrum of suppression takes place all throughout the year, not just on election day. So as you said, people will wait and do a, a an October documentary or 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 run a program or put mm-hmm. some resources into it, you know, a week before election day because they're thinking about election day suppression. But it's a process that takes place right. all throughout the year. And we've got to support the groups um, that are dealing with this, that are educated right. communities. You you know the, the organizations that do an incredible job, Legal Defense Fund, Advancement Project, right. Lawyers Committee. Um, they need more support, you know, so that when, when we identify and, and, and amplify these issues that we run up against in every state that we go to, right. particularly rural counties, the groups that have the legal resources and the expertise to deal with it, they need more support. So it's not even just supporting about my group, right? It's about supporting all of the groups that are trying to deal with this issue, which again, can really define this election. Speaking of that, last question for you on on that particular point. We got to deal with funding. What historically has happened is that to reach black folks, folks have waited for the Democratic nominee. Yeah. And then a paltry amount of money is put towards black organizations. Your group is a nonpartisan group. Are you seeing African-Americans funding our own efforts? Uh, you know, I said after after 16, I remember Bob Johnson was, um, uh, I had him on, on my show. And I was like, dude, I'm sorry. You got, I said, black folks have got to fund our own voter initiatives where we control the money because we know exactly best where it goes. Not hoping some white consultant will say, well, no, we're going to put the money over here when we know what's happening on the ground. 
Are you seeing African-Americans willing to put their money where their mouths are to fund groups like yours and others so we have real black voter engagement and we're not having the same conversation, oh, y'all not doing this, not doing that? All right. We're seeing a little bit of it, you know, in at different levels. You know, you've got um, you've got groups like the Black Economic Alliance, which is really tried to reach out to, you know, high net worth black folks and who are who are interested in these issues and, and they've targeted races in the past couple of election cycles. So you've got organizations like that. You know, we get some individual support um, from all levels, like small donors. In fact, one of the most moving things, one of the reasons we even decided to continue our bus tours after the very first one was because somebody who was on the tour was so moved by it that she wrote out a check for us right there and then. Wow. We, we were like, you know, no, we can't take this. We're not trying to, we don't do this to get money from the folks that we work with, right? We're doing it, you know, to, to help amplify. And her point was, we all own this. Like this is this is this is for all of us. This is an investment in us, yep. and it really even changed the way that we were thinking about um, how we go about things. And so we've seen it at different levels. But to your point, it's not enough. Like we we need more. You know, we 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 need more of the high net worth folks, whether it be athletes and entertainers, or or even black folks that are in health and technology. We we need more of our community really supporting our efforts. Because again, if we're not going to fund it, if we're yep. not going to focus us, who will? Where can folks give to support uh, what y'all doing? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, um, you know, we've been we've been blessed by you know just the the grassroots support that that we get because people get moved. You know, because when we go to communities where they don't ever see a campaign bus, right? They see a big old black bus come rolling through their community, like like literally, we've seen people be brought to tears. Um, so it's it's just been you know I'm just really glad to have been a part of this process of, of starting this process, but really just kind of going off of the, the great feelings of love and energy that we get everywhere we go. So it's, it's really been an incredible experience for what's, us. What's the site? What's the, oh. What, what's so somebody wants to give. Yeah, you can um, go to blackvotersmatterfund.org, blackvoters with an S, matterfund.org. And you can follow us on social media, Black Voters MTR, Black Voters MTR is Facebook, Twitter, and Insta. All right, Cliff Albright. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Rowan. All right. All the candidates this week have had surrogates traveling in and out South Carolina, not only this week, but for, for the past several months. But there was a special event that took place uh, on here in South Carolina when John Legend took to the stage to say why he's supporting Elizabeth Warren, but he also shared a few tunes with the audience. I watched many of the debates. I saw what the candidates were posting on Twitter. I saw them in town halls and interviews. I read some of their policy positions. And as much as I wanted to publicly say I'm doing, it became abundantly clear to me that one candidate stood out from the rest. That one candidate was my clear choice from among a very talented field. That one candidate was Elizabeth Warren. Let me tell you why I'm so confident in Elizabeth Warren. First of all, she's brilliant. Can we acknowledge that? Now, I, I know the bar is very low right now. We currently have a president who embarrasses this great nation on a daily basis with his incompetence, his lack of preparedness, his unabashed ignorance, and his lack of curiosity. He's a hot mess. 
Bless his heart, as y'all would say now. Wouldn't it be so refreshing to have a woman of Senator Warren's brilliance replacing him? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a woman who came from humble beginnings, worked her way through college and law school, and ascended her way to become a Harvard Law School professor, a U.S. senator, then president of the United States of America. Wouldn't that be magnificent? Have a great night. We'll see you at the polls on Saturday. Make sure you vote. Make sure you tell your friends to vote. Thank you so much for being here. When we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered, I'll share my final thoughts on what's important for black voters here in South Carolina and beyond. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered from Charleston, South Carolina. Back in a moment. You want to support Roller March Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Tomorrow night is going to be huge when we find out who South Carolina picks as their choice. According to current uh, polling numbers, Joe Biden is expected to win this state. But it's not just in South Carolina. Super Tuesday takes place four days later. And on Tuesday, we're going to have an opportunity to see what black voters are thinking about in 16 states and territories. Nearly one-third of all delegates are up for grabs on Super Tuesday. Will it be Biden, Sanders, Bloomberg? Can Buttigieg somehow make an impression? What about Klobuchar? What about Warren? And what about Tom Steyer? All of these candidates are still running. But here's what's most important for us. We cannot just simply talk about what people are saying or not saying. We also have to be engaged and go to the polls. Let me be real clear. Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president in November. There's going to be a Democratic nominee. Black folks are clearly do not like Donald Trump. And what is important for us is to understand that what happens not just in the next four years, but the next 40 years matters. When you see Donald Trump appointing these right-wing federal judges, they want to control the federal courts for the next half century, the next 50 years, folks. And so what we better understand is that there is power in our vote, but not just in our vote. It's also what we do after we vote to make sure these candidates do what they say they were going to do. Now, folks, I'm standing in front of this old slave mart. 
where enslaved Africans were bought and sold on this property right behind me. It is now a museum. Now look, when people say that, well, okay, people use these old adages, but the fact of the matter, it is clear. The, the ballot box is covered in the blood of people of African descent. And so we must use that power to the best of our ability. It's important for us to understand that we control our own destiny. And if we stay at home, all we're doing is making it easier for the people who oppose us to stay in power. So we're going to continue to cover these races. I'm, on Monday, I'm going to be on the ground in Dallas, one of the Super Tuesday states. We'll be hearing from one of the African Americans who is running for the United States Senate. Then on Tuesday, we have a special coverage. We'll be live all night with our Super Tuesday coverage. You don't want to miss that on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Please, folks, don't forget, your support makes all this possible for us to be able to go on the road to hear from voters like you. And so please support us at RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. Of course, you can pay via Cash App, PayPal, or Square. Our job is to be independent and speak truth to power. And we certainly appreciate all that you have done. As we always do on Friday, we always end the show with those who support our show. And so we thank you. And again, we'll see you guys on Monday. I got to go. Holler!
Check out Roland Martin Unfiltered, youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. Everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. Hi, this is Essence Atkins, and you're watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Hey, yo, peace, world. What's going on? It's the Love King of R&B, Raheem Devon, and you're watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Hi, my name is Brisha Webb, and you're watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Ow. Well, I like a nice filter usually, but we can be unfiltered. What's going on? This is Tobias Trevelyan. If you're ready... You are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. What's up? I'm Lance Gross and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. I mean, could it be any other way? Really? It's Roland Martin. You want to support Roland Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. as Roland Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Hey fam, want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered, the blackest show on all of digital cable and broadcast. Check out our audio podcast. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roller Martin Unfiltered. Press play.
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.